right. Good morning. Hi. Hey, there we are. <laughs> um, as you can tell, I'm a little, uh, little froggy this morning. The, <laughs> the, that's right. Horsing around. The, the, the allergies. The allergies have been brutal this week. It's kind of okay because I always wanted to be a bass, and so whenever this happens, I, I really enjoy singing. Uh, my my uh, range changes significantly, and so that's good. Um, so we're going to keep talking about giving. This is three weeks in a row. There we go. Yeah, I like that enthusiasm. We didn't prepare that at home before. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. From from zero to how much did we... T- uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, th- this is a sermon, of course, but I am going to go into teacher mode a little bit. I hope you don't mind that um, every once in a while. Um, but it is a message, very much a message. In fact, the last couple of weeks as I've listened to John, I felt the Spirit stirring uh, and I, and my, my excitement about the opportunity to share with you uh, on this specific topic, on money, just has grown. And um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about giving. Now, when, when we started planning this out about a month ago, um, I suggested to John that I might focus on Ananias and Sapphira uh, as sort of a joke, right? Um, sort of a nice way to end the series, just to remind everybody God's not joking around when it comes to money. But, um, but not this morning, not, Ananias, not this morning. Uh, maybe we'll circle back, right? Uh, but we are talking about giving money. And I want to be very clear about that because we appropriately affirm that there are many ways to exercise the gift of giving. There are many ways to be generous. But let's be clear, when Paul is talking about giving in his New Testament letters, when Jesus is talking about generosity in his teachings, they are talking about monetary wealth that may be in the form of possessions that can be converted into wealth or simply wealth accrued, but we're talking about money. Now, of course, we all want each other to be generous with our time and our energy and all of those things. Yes, of course, I don't think that there's any denial there in reckoning with the fact that we have to talk about money. As a church, as God's people, we have to talk about money. Um, And I'll say a little more about that uh, as we get started. Let me just ask a preliminary question. And, uh, and, of course, if you don't feel comfortable raising your hand, don't worry about that. Um, but what we're trying to do is wade into the awkwardness of talking about money a little bit this morning. How many of you have ever been in a situation in your life when you were dependent on the generosity of someone else in order to have your living, in order to pay for your food? Anybody? Yeah. A lot of us have experienced being in that situation where the generosity, the gift, the monetary gift of others was the only way to make ends meet. And 
and the reverse is true. Um, how many of you have ever, I already know the answer to this question, how many of you have ever given to someone who depended on you for their livelihood? Every parent in here should raise their hands, but... Um, This exchange is the heartbeat of the church. And I dare to say that to you this morning. Money, the giving and receiving of monetary gifts that make it possible for us to make a way in the world is at the very core of the life of the church. It is part of the gospel. The arrangement of our economic lives together is one of the things, one of the central things that the inbreaking of the kingdom of God effects. When Jesus begins to proclaim the good news in Luke chapter 4, in a passage that's very famous, he says that, that it's good news to the poor. Now reckon with why that is. Why would he say something like that? It's good news to the poor, and there's no ambiguity in that term. It's not poor in a variety of ways. It is the people who are destitute, the people who don't have the money, the people who are debtors in a literal sense. It's good news to them that the kingdom of God is breaking in because their economic reality will change wherever God's reign manifests. And it does that through God's people. Through God's people. Leaving open the possibility that God will provide in a variety of other ways. The one thing we know for sure when we read the New Testament is that it is through the giving of God's people that that economic transformation takes place. We know that for sure. So I want to talk about money. I want to talk about it. Um, I personally have been in multiple situations. So this is, very, this is very near to my heart. I've been in a lot of situations where without the generosity of God's people, I don't know what would have been. Um, I, I get emotional anytime we sing the song, Had It Not Been the Lord Who Was On Our Side. Uh, that's, a, that's just sort of the anthem of our years in the mission field. And it speaks to the reality of my childhood growing up where the, the church's generosity helped my single mom um, get through. The church's generosity helped me figure out how to move into adulthood and into um, the daunting reality of paying for a college education. Um, it's important that we be honest about everything that frames this conversation. One of the things that frames it right now is a national debate about student debt. Do not divorce that from your faith in Jesus. Do not divorce that convert. Don't get sucked into 
that, that politics, that politics is not the kingdom of God. And our position as a church on money, every aspect of it, including the debts of others, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Well, there's a lot of things that make the conversation awkward and difficult. Our political allegiances, our, our strongly felt opinions about things, but so much more. So let's go to uh, a little bit of straight talk. Here's some reasons that it's difficult to talk about money in church. And there are others. I mean, there are cultural reasons above all. Um, we, it's taboo, right? Uh, you're not supposed to, you know, what, what, how, how does the saying go? You're not supposed to talk about politics and religion at the Thanksgiving table. And there's one other one maybe. But I can assure you the one that you don't even need to say, you don't even need to put it in proverbial form, is you don't talk about your personal finances with other people. It's a private matter. Well, guess what? In the church of God, Personal finances does not mean the same thing that it does outside the church of God. We got we to get real honest about what personal means in this context. But other difficulties. Okay, so there, there is not a single verse of the New Testament to be found that refers to church overhead. Right? The expense of having a building and grounds, the cost of doing business, not a jot, not a tittle. And so it's very difficult for us to talk about money in the way that the New Testament does. And for that reason, I think we sometimes avoid it because when we start being really honest and we have Budget Sunday and we see where does the bulk of this go, it is not to the kinds of relationships that money in the New Testament is all about. Almost every word of it is about providing for the needs of other human beings, of making sure that they're okay, of exercising generosity in the expression of the kingdom of God. And so it's tricky, because here we are trapped into a situation, and I just want to be honest about that. I'm very proud to have what we have and be able to use it for the purposes that we use it for, but do not deceive yourself into thinking that it's an easy justification to leap to, well, that, our money needs to go to that because we use it for good things. Okay, but let's admit that there's a little, at least a little awkwardness there, because we have no model of that in the Bible. At least not in the New Testament. The Old Testament provides some help in this regard. Uh, but, but certainly, if we sit down with Paul, we sit down with Jesus and James and John, we sit down with Luke in particular, there's no question about what money is about, and it is not having and maintaining property as a religious community. And so we have to deal with that awkwardness. We can't, we can't let that silence us in regard to money because money is at the center of our life together, even if we don't want to admit it. 
Well, it gets even more complicated because when we start looking at those budgets, and I'm not talking about Stones River in particular, I'm, I'm generalizing. I've, I've been a part of a lot of churches. You've been a part of a lot of churches. Um, the fact of the matter is, so much of our money, uh, even where it's not about overhead, goes to things for us, things that benefit us. And there's a certain self-centeredness to that. I'm very familiar with, um, I, I don't know what benevolence overall looks like nationally, but I'm very familiar with how much money goes to mission, um, and that's usually construed in conventional, traditional terms as, as supporting missionaries overseas, right, foreign or cross-cultural mission work. And, and those numbers have, have been under 2% in the Protestant American church since always. Um, that's, that's just a reality. I mean, and it's staggering because when you look at the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that go into that and realize that's less than 2% of, of the American church's expenditures and the amount spent on benevolence isn't, I, I don't recall exactly what that is, but it ain't much more. Everything else is for us. And good stuff for our kids, for, for, for youth ministry, for, for um, certainly the maintenance of facilities and, and keeping the lights on and doing other kinds of good things, things we should do. But I have to say it's at least a little awkward when we start talking about money. If we're honest, how much of that goes to us and how much of the church is in serious debt for that purpose uh, I love the fact that this church has owned this property outright and has no, no debt carries no debt so much of the American church is paying down 30 year uh, mortgages on properties that they felt they needed to build in order to grow so much. And what happens with that, of course, is that then the people in ministry positions who are paid by those same churches have to toe the line. You have to say, this is what we should spend our money on. We don't need to, we don't need to talk about these awkward things because this is debt we have to pay. And, and, and I don't get paid myself if we don't keep up the offering right? We, with, and, 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 and in our tradition, I'll just add as a little side note, in our tradition in, in the restoration movement, um, that was one of the principal arguments about, against having located preachers in the middle of the 1800s, where we, the, the convention was simply circuit preachers. People would ride from church to church, a horseback, or on carts and buggies, and, and, preach and share, and there were no full-time ministry positions, didn't exist. And when that started developing, people started going, you know, it'd be good, really good to have consistency with somebody, and there's benefits to having a, a long-term relationship, and we really love this brother who's going to preach for us, and we want to sustain their family, and all that, right? It's all good stuff, but one of the primary arguments was, you do that, and that person is bought and paid for. And when it's time for them to preach something you don't want to hear, it's very dangerous, and they usually won't do it, right? And that's true. And the same thing happens with 
this complex economic reality of debt and salaries. and um, So we have to look at where the money goes and what that means as a community. Another reason that, that it's very difficult to talk about money is because of abuse and distrust. We've all seen, I mean, <laughs> my entire life, there's just been news story after news story about a famous televangelist or a pastor or whatever who gets caught. A, being filthy rich off of the church, and B, embezzling money, right? Uh, cheating somehow to get more, to have more. And so there's this, there's this sort of general distrust of like, are these, are these religious people, you know, basically doing this to get money, right? To, to kind of uh, cheat the church out of its money for their own sakes. I, I saw recently, last night I think, a, a, a commercial for a new, a new TV series, I think on Hulu, uh, about a, a church couple that's sort of bilking their congregation in order to have this lifestyle. You go on TikTok, there's an entire, there's an entire uh, uh, thread of, of TikToks about preachers' shoes. You've seen this, preacher's shoes, right? Where, where there, there's this whole sort of subculture of cool preachers who wear these incredibly expensive sneakers, right? As part of their image. Uh, $1,000 sneakers, right? This, this, is, this is part of the reality of the church. We live with this reality. and We, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what do we do with dishonesty and greed and the distortion of the gospel, speaking of which, the prosperity gospel. And John mentioned this already, uh, but I want to reiterate that one of the reasons that it's incredibly challenging to talk about money is because as soon as we do, we run into this idea that, well, you should, you should give your money to God because God's going to give you more. And there's this, there's this exchange. And that is so powerful that it becomes a primary current in global Christianity, not least coming out of America. And so you have televangelists, famous preachers, megachurch preachers who regularly tell people this very thing, that if you'll only give to us, God will give you even more. And that's a promise. And that is, a, that is a, an abominable distortion of the gospel. And yet, it is so difficult to combat because it is true that God provides. Thank you, Jen. It is true that God will provide for you. That God and His grace and His sovereignty is interested in your economic well-being. Wants you to be well. Wants the poor to be liberated from their poverty. And we'll provide. And we'll provide if you trust. And we'll, and we'll bless the widow who gives the very last of what she has. We'll bless the Philippian church, we're going to talk about this, who give out of their poverty. It is right to say to the poor, trust God and give to others. 
And that is so awkward. That's so difficult. When we went to Peru to work primarily among the underclass, we were going into a situation where this distorted televangelism sort of approach to money and a legalistic understanding of the tithe was widespread, rampant. Uh, known. It was, it was the reputation of evangelical churches that this is the reality. So uh, Peruvians, um, the vast majority of whom are not evangelicals, sort of look at this witness of the church with tremendous distrust. And so we were committed to preaching the gospel in a way that made it very clear we are not here to bilk you, the poor, out of what little you have. We are not here to consume widows' houses in the name of religion. And yet, as John pointed out, that critique of the religious leaders consuming widows' houses is followed immediately by the widow who gives all she has. The critique of the very system in which she gives all she has And so Jesus is capable of saying at the same time, you are tyrants and God condemns what you're doing. And to the widow who participates in that system and believes that she must put her money into that system, he says that's faith in God. That's trust. Both at the same time. So how do you do that? Boy, it's, it's so challenging. The reality is God provides, and the reality is that many among us are wolves who would devour the sheep. Okay, so that's, that's tricky. And then there's the question of how do we talk about this stuff? How do we talk about money without manipulating? And I'm, I'm speaking primarily from the teacher's perspective, from the preacher's perspective. We have, to, we have to say to the church, it is your calling, your ethical responsibility, your religious obligation. It is the truth of your faith. You must give. We have to preach that message and not manipulate people. And there's a fine line between persuasion and manipulation hard. It's hard to know how to talk about these things in a way that is fair and true and doesn't cross that line. Add to that the fact that we are consumed by a view of the world that is so deeply materialistic, so, so deeply secularized. Whereas in the New Testament, the vision of money has to do with the belief that the end is near. I mean, how would you live in regard to all your stuff, in regard to your work, your income, how would you live if you honestly believed Jesus is coming back any minute now? What, well, like, what, how much does that matter? How much does all your stuff matter if you really believe we're living for a moment of radical transformation? It's about to happen. And after 2,000 years of 
that not being the case, the church has settled into a way of life that confesses and sings the belief that Jesus is coming soon, but lives economically like a realist. Got a plan for the next four decades, you know. And so it's very difficult. We have to cultivate a theological imagination, a vision of our reality that has something to do with the promises of God being immediately, right now, born into our lives, our financial lives. We have to figure out how to live in the future rather than just plan for it. So that's really, that's really difficult. And lastly, let's just be clear, sin is a problem here. Sin is a problem. Both because we are sinful in regard to money. We are sinful in our use of money. Our, our frailty, morally, obviously affects the way that we prioritize money in our lives. And because our sinful predilections in so many other ways touch our financial lives and our desire very often where money is concerned is for pleasure and comfort, is for selfish gratification, is motivated by fear and not faith, is invested in something other than the kingdom of God. It just is. And the best among us, uh, among whom I do not number, the best among us still struggle with their sinful desires where money is concerned. So, Straight talk. We're, we're grappling with something very difficult here. Um, but I, but I, I am so convinced that, that in order to become a community on mission together, a missional church, that we have to reckon with this, that I'm, I'm willing to wade into these waters with you and struggle with that difficulty and that awkwardness. I, I don't think that the difficulty is, is in any way uh, an excuse not to talk about these things. In fact, to a large extent, it's the very reason we should. The very reason we should ugh, lean into the challenge. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Just reiterating some things here. Talking about money is everywhere in the New Testament. And I mean everywhere. It is throughout every single letter of the New Testament. There are both explicit and implicit economic statements, financial statements. Uh, Jesus won't quit talking about it. Paul's entire ministry is tangled up with it. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning when we, when we turn to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we, we have to learn how to talk about money with the, the, the transparency and the frankness and the vulnerability 
that the New Testament itself does. If we're talking about money less than the Bible, it's a good reason to ask why. Money's an integral part of the story of God's people because what we do with our money is a function of our relationship with God. John, a couple of weeks ago, insisted that it is a spiritual matter to talk about money. This is another way of saying the same thing. And, and I don't mean that it's an expression of our relationship with God. You know, that's a little bit too superficial for, for, for what I am perceiving in these texts. It is a function of our relationship with God in Christ. Our economic reality is transformed. The way we live with money comes out of our relationship with God. And so the inbreaking of God's kingdom is good news to the poor because it transforms the church's financial life. Because participation in God's mission is always about our money. Always. And I hope that, that saying it that adamantly surfaces some of your assumptions. Well, no, Greg, isn't participation in God's mission about sharing the good news, preaching the word? Isn't it about prayer and worship? Right? So what if I spend my money in this or that way? Isn't, it, isn't, isn't participation in God's mission really about the things that I say and do in the lives of other people? No. No, it is not. Because <laughs> the things you say and do in the lives of other people cannot be done apart from your financial reality. That's an illusion. You don't get to keep a little part of your, your life private and then everything else touches the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to relate to people just by what you say to them. And, and forget what's going on with your money. I know a lot of us have tried to live that way. But no, the answer is no. Now, let me add the caveat. Participation in God's mission is always about our money. It's not only about our money. I hope obviously not only about our money. But it is always about our money. So, so let, let's get into 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 7. And um, as though it weren't difficult enough to, you can stay on that slide, we're not going to jump forward yet. As though it weren't difficult enough to talk about money and talk about money for three weeks in a row, um, I want to read to you a lengthy portion of 2 Corinthians. <laughs> now, Paul says, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And as far as I'm concerned, we are not good at this. We being not just Stones River, but including Stones River. We're not good at this. And the reason we're not good at this is because uh, our culture has shaped us to have very short attention spans. And we're terrible auditory learners. Just by and large, we really struggle to pay attention to more than about a paragraph. Uh, it's, it's hard, and, and it's hard for me. And, and I've practiced this a lot. Um, so, challenge extended. Okay, 
But just keep in mind, this letter would have been read in its entirety all at once as soon as it was received by the Corinthian church. They would have said and listened to all 13 chapters as we have them divided now. And probably would have done so multiple times. So we're going to just do a few chapters. We're, we're looking at chapters 7 through 13 because more than half of this letter is about money. It's the primary topic. But we're just going to read a few together. I want you to have these words ringing in your ears as we proceed this morning. 2 Corinthians 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I often boast about you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved you, with that letter, though only briefly. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For we see that earnest, uh, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves guiltless in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, but on account of the one who was wronged, and in order that your zeal for us might be made known to you uh, before God. In this we find comfort. In addition to our own consolation, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his mind has been set at rest by all of you. For if I have been somewhat boastful about you to him, I was not disgraced. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true as well. And his heart goes out all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you welcomed him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. 
For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us so that we might urge Titus that as he had already made a beginning, he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we also want you to excel in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something, now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you. But it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need. So that their abundance may be for you, may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Just a little side note, that is from Exodus about the manna, about that provision in the desert. But thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same eagerness for you that I myself have. He not only accepted our appeal, but since he is more eager than ever, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his proclaiming the good news. And not only that, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us while we are administering this generous undertaking for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We attend that intend that no one should blame us about this generous gift that we are administering. For we intend to do what is right, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of others. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found eager in many matters, but who is now more eager than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker in your service as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints, 
For I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia had been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you were not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing and abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may, have a, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. All right, I'm going to stop there. Three chapters. Congratulations. Throughout chapter 7, I guess that some of you were struggling to see what it had to do with money. But it's this long introduction into the argument that Paul is making about his own credibility. That he's trustworthy in this, in this undertaking that he's going to talk about and talk about and talk about. This monetary gift that he's expecting to collect from the Corinthians when he arrives and share with the church in Jerusalem. I'll explain a little more about that in just a moment. But starting that back, back in chapter 7, he's already moving toward this topic. And he's trying to, he's trying to convince them that there is nothing about what he's doing that is going to be manipulative. There is nothing that is dishonest or untrustworthy. Even in the first century, this was already one of the primary difficulties of talking about money. Knowing that people were going around and claiming to be saying things on God's behalf and expecting to get paid for it. And here in the midst of that, Paul tells his churches, the ones that he started 
throughout Asia Minor, hey, start saving up money. I'm going to come by later and pick it up. Okay. Um, and what are we doing with this? Well, I'm going to give it to some, some, some needy people in another country. Okay. Um, we've heard maybe that that's not the case. Oh, there's some people talking about me, are they? Trying to undermine my credibility. And Paul is saying, I've never given you a reason to believe that I would do something like that. Before God and everybody else, it will be clear that we are going to do the right thing with this money. Trust us. So that question of use, what's this for? Okay, we'll take up money. What's this for, really? And who's going to administer? And how are they going to administer? And are they trustworthy? Are they just trying to are they just trying to sell us religion to get our money? What's going on here? And Paul says, you know, you know Jesus. You know that he became poor, and not just in some figurative sense. You know that he had the riches of the glory of God's presence. Our word for that is heaven. And, and not considering himself too good to take on that form, that human form, he lowered himself into the status of a slave he became literally poor. Remember, uh, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he became literally a participant in the poverty of first century Judaism. The oppressive regime of Roman taxation. In order to do the will of God so that you might become rich, and not just in some figurative sense. So that you might become rich and generous in the same way. That when you have enough to share, you share it. And when you don't, your brothers and sisters share with you. Not to put a burden on you, not to, not to make life harder, but to make you honest about the abundance that you actually have. So that when you have need, it's provided for, and when others have needs, you provide for them. You see what I'm saying? When the kingdom of God rearranges the church's economic life together, that's when the poor rejoice. Because it, 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 it doesn't usually happen in any other way. Again, I leave open the possibility that God can drop manna from heaven. That God can somehow provide for you in your need in unusual ways. But here's the usual way. When your brothers have enough and you don't, they give it to you. When your sisters have need, you provide for them. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. Not to be a burden but to unburden one another. Okay, so let's, let's just 
get clear on sort of what's going on in detail here. Uh, you can jump to the next one, Kyle. Thank you. So this is the fourth in a series of letters uh, from Paul to the church that he helped establish in Corinth. We have the second and fourth letters. That's first and second Corinthians. Um, Paul refers to a previous letter in first Corinthians and he refers to a letter that is clearly not first Corinthians that was sent prior to second Corinthians. And so so that only a couple of them made, them into the, made it into the canon. We don't know what they said other than sort of the, what, what is suggested in, in these letters. But um, he'd instructed the Corinthians to take up a regular collection for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. And that should be 1 Corinthians 16. That's a typo. 1 Corinthians 16. Probably because of widespread prolonged famine. Um, in Acts chapter 11, Agabus makes it known, this is uh, the year 44, AD 44, makes it known that there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world. That phrase usually refers to um, the Roman world, the empire. It's not talking about the globe. He's talking about sort of the known world of the Roman empire. And, uh, and then in 45, indeed, uh, famines started striking various parts of the empire. And that persisted. There's a cascading effect. And uh, that persisted in terms of supply of grain, particularly from Egypt, for 20 years. For 20 years throughout the Roman Empire, different places were suffering shortages. And not least, Judea. Um, and so that's pretty much from uh, 44 to 64, that's pretty much the period during which Paul is writing his letters. Um, and so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that he's traveling through the world with significant concern about the poverty of the poor. And especially... Uh, those in Judea who have been hard hit uh, by local, sh not only by the global shortages uh, and the supply, supply chain breakdowns, but by uh, local drought resulting in an in, in increased famine. And so Paul is going to, to these Christians who are new Christians that he himself preached to. He says he didn't baptize a lot of them himself, but at least they're members of the church because of his pioneer mission work throughout Asia Minor and Achaia, and they also are suffering under these conditions. And indeed, the, the Philippian church, the Macedonians, as it's referred to there in 2 Corinthians, uh, were, he says, they, they themselves were suffering under, under poverty. Uh, and that's not a surprise, knowing what's going on uh, throughout the empire. And, uh, and he says to them, I still I want you to give out of the abundance that God has given you. And we're going to carry that money to the church in Jerusalem who are suffering and in need. Um, and um, the, the apostles had asked Paul to do that at the beginning of his ministry. 
when they accepted him, they said, uh, he says, they, they, they asked only one thing of me, that I remember the poor. And so he did. And he, uh, he constructed this campaign that made his preaching ministry very fraught. I mean, think about it. He could have not done this, this fundraising campaign for the, the poor in Jerusalem, and just done all the work that he did and never asked them for this collection. And there would have been so much less suspicion about him. I mean, you hear it just in the three chapters that I read, how much suspicion there was that this is some sort of con. That he's, he's got this whole religious thing going and he's just trying to get money out of us. And how much easier, but he, he refuses and he fights the battle to say, I'm credible. I've suffered for the gospel. I've never lied to you. Trust me to do this thing. Give me your money. Trust me. Tricky, right? <laughs> but necessary. Necessary. Because this Gentile offering wasn't just a practical, hey, let's, let's, let's have a relief program for the poorest of the poor. It wasn't just that. It was fellowship. Now, you, we all remember, right, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 with the, sh- the sharing of all things in common among the very first believers. And what a, what a powerful vision of life together that is and how disconcerting that is given the way that we order our lives in modern society. This, this thing that Paul is doing is simply the extension of that very same life to churches beyond Jerusalem. Simply, Paul's saying, look, we are actually, practically, truly in communion with one another. And do you know how you express that? Well, you pray for each other. Yeah, you pray for each other. Well, you all take communion on Sunday, and isn't that lovely that we're all doing the same thing on the first day? Yeah, that's great. You know how you actually express fellowship? Money. Why? Because that's life. Because we wake up every single day and try to make money and have to spend money. Every day. That's life. That's real life. And so fellowship that is shared life together is economic in nature. It just is. And it's even deeper than that. Go to the next slide here. The language of communion, what we know as koinonia, probably heard that word before, the Greek term for communion or fellowship. It's also translated as partnership. This is the only language that Paul uses to refer to sharing economically. You can look at every one of those verses that I have listed there. This is how Paul talks about sharing economically. It is an act of communion, an act of fellowship, an act of partnership or participation. Now, you hear me use the word participation all the time. Participation in the mission of God. That is the same word that Paul uses 
to talk about fellowship with one another spiritually and economically. You can't participate in the kingdom of God except financially. That's, that's the reality that we live in. For Paul, this is a serious theological claim. Our life together in the kingdom of God is constituted by sharing what we have. I becomes we. I becomes we. We overcome individualism, not least through the practice of financial sharing. So just really briefly, I want to I want to highlight for you what Paul is trying to do in this letter. He uses every tool in the box to convince the Corinthian church to live up to the financial implications of their faith. And the reason I want to highlight this is because I don't know how this lands for you. I don't know how this particular message makes you feel. But when I, when I read Paul... It becomes clear to me that he is far less concerned about their feelings than he is about their faithfulness. Now here's a brutal reality. Statistically, this has been studied. If you want the church to give less on any given Sunday, preach about giving. Every time. For whatever reason, when preachers challenge the church to give, they clam up. So it's risky, you know? That's not the effect we're going for. I want to persuade you. I want to persuade you to think about being more generous, to meditate on that, to grapple with that. Not only here in Stones River, I, I mean, I, a lot of what I give financially is to things that aren't connected to Stones River. And that's okay. But, but it's also here. Also that. Also the things that we together have said, this is what we want to do for God. And this is what it costs. Also for that. And this particular project that Paul had devised is a model. It's not the only kind of thing, right, that, that, that the church should put its money toward. But it's, it's a model. And to that end, Paul says, you're amazing, I brag about you. I love the things that you have done faithfully. Stones River, your generosity has created a situation where we're not in debt. Praise God and thank you for the years, the decades of giving that that represents. Look at what we have. Look at what's been done. Look at all that has been accomplished because of your generosity. God is proud of that and proud of you. And I feel for your struggles. And I need you to test the sincerity of your faith, and test it against money. I exhort you to do that. And if you fail in this, it's an embarrassment. 
Other people will hear about it. They'll know. It'll embarrass me. It'll embarrass you. I beg you to think about your own confession of faith, about the Lord that you serve, about your belief that he provides, about your belief that Jesus became poor for your own sake. Think about it. And, 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 and know that we're not going to do anything that isn't completely transparent to everybody. There's no hidden agendas. There's no uses of money here that you don't know about. And um, look at my record, you know. Ask the people who have given. They'll tell you. And um, don't make me have this conversation with you again. <laughs> right? That's one of the better parts. We didn't get to that in the letter, but, but he says, you know, I know, I know you, you, some of you all say that I talk big in my letters, and then when I show up, I'm, I'm a weak personality. Um, but he says, I don't, don't, make, don't make me come strong when I'm there in person. I don't want to do that. You don't want me to do that. Right? Um, and he uses, he uses sarcasm, you know, he says, um, what have we ever done except, you know, not been a burden to you? Is that, was that so hard? Never, never took anything personally from you. And he expresses his affection, his deep and sincere affection, his love for these brothers and sisters. To know that this is not, this is not some sort of financial exchange, impersonal exchange. This is, this is us. This is us our family. He uses every tool, every tool at his disposal to try to convince them to be faithful to the truth of the gospel. The gospel that transforms our lives entirely. Uh, skip the next two slides, Kyle. I'm just going to go to the last one. Here are the three. This is a three-point sermon, but I'm only now coming to the three points. These are them. Three points in conclusion. Participating in God's, uh, participating in the kingdom that is reorganizing our life together is about the essential practice of giving money. What would it look like to share our lives in a way that bears witness to the kingdom. Participating in God's mission, that is sharing in God's work, especially among the poor, depends upon this essential practice of giving money. What would it look like to make God's work among our neighbors a top priority financially? And lastly, opening up fellowship, communion, participation with one another. That is to say, bearing witness to a new economic reality with our neighbors depends on this essential practice. This is discipleship and community. It's, it's, it's about money. Not only 
about money, but always about money? What would it look like to open our fellowship in a way that bears witness to the truth of the gospel in a world of materialism and fear and selfishness? These are the questions, my family, my beloved family, that I think we have to grapple with. We're not in each other's lives in such a way as to say, well, here's what you should do with what you have. How much do you have? Here's what you should do with it. We're not in each other's lives in a legalistic way to say, here's the percentage. Meet the mark. But we are in each other's lives to speak truth to each other. To say, I don't know everything that's yours. But the gospel that we believe calls us to a radical economic life together for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of God's work, for the sake of our poor neighbors. That we must struggle with. We must continue to struggle with. We must not stop talking about regularly for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus, for the proclamation of the gospel. Pray with me, please. Lord God, this is a hard conversation. And we really, truly don't know exactly how to get to that radical transformation. We are captive to economic systems. So many of us carry debt of our own that we feel no freedom to give with the generosity that we would like to. So many of us struggle to make ends meet. So many of us fear for the future if we give away what we have in the present. So many of us long to open up ourselves in vulnerability, in Christ-likeness to those who need more than we need, and yet we don't know exactly how to do that. So many of us so many of us are caught between the tension between wisdom and generosity. We want to be wise with what you've given us. We want to be good stewards and we know how to talk about that kind of language. But we, we also want to be as recklessly generous as you have been with us. We want to be like you, Jesus. And that's at least a little scary. And so I pray that you give us courage, that you convict us by the very same gospel that we've talked about this morning. That you remind us always that you became poor so that we could become rich. So that we could give out of our abundance. So that we could rely on one another when we have too little. Thank you, Father, for challenging us to test our faith. 
against our financial realities. Give us your grace as we have failed, as we are bound to stumble. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you make our life together a witness to our community. Amen.